0: Greetings, everyone. I am Jessie Hippo Rosario, Director of Member Relations here at ASHP and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program at the 2021 ASHP Specialty Pharmacy Conference. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at ASHP's summer meetings and exhibition.
1: My name is Matthew Rim, and I'm the Associate Director of Specialty Pharmacy Services at the University of Illinois Chicago. I'm joined today by Michael Gannon, Assistant Director of Specialty Pharmacy Services at the University of Illinois Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, and Scott Canfield, Assistant Director of Clinical Program Development at Johns Hopkins Home Care Group in Baltimore, Maryland. Let's get started. I'm going to share some of industry trends that make our jobs in healthcare specialty health system specialty pharmacy complicated. Specialty pharmacy has become a significant driver of health system finances. According to the national trends in prescription drug expenditures and projections for 2021 article published by AGHP, last year overall drug spending in the US grew 4.9%, which is now over $530 billion. Specialty drug spending was over $260 billion, which is around 50% of the total drug spending. You are seeing one of the tables from the expenditures article that I prepared as one of the authors, and this table summarizes expenditures of specialty drugs only. As we expected, specialty drug expenditures from mail order, clinics, and retail pharmacy sectors grew substantially even during the pandemic. But non-federal hospitals and long-term care sectors had negative growth in 2020. I also wanted to point out that home health care is a relatively small sector, but specialty drug expenditures grew over 16% last year. It's a fastest growing sector. So let's talk about some challenges. Health system specialty pharmacy practitioners and leaders face some significant challenges. Many health systems started building their in-house specialty pharmacies about 10 years ago, and I started working in specialty pharmacy in 2013. I thought about challenges back then and now for this presentation. we, We continue to struggle with the same challenges. Access to limited distribution of drugs, accreditation, admin burden, and data management, and 340B program to name just a few. Whenever I ask our colleagues what keeps them up at night, I often hear about payer access restrictions and decreased reimbursements. So major payers examine their drug spend and decide what portion of claims are going through the most cost advantageous channel, and which makes things much more complicated. We continue to struggle to enter and maintain PBM specialty pharmacy networks. And we are seeing more white bagging problems and not able to provide services to many of our patients due to site of care restrictions.
2: My name is Mike Gannon. I'm the Assistant Director for Specialty Pharmacy Services at the University of Illinois Chicago. What I'm gonna talk about today is strategies around the contracting process because that's gonna guide all of the financial and billing implications that your institution will have while managing your specialty pharmacy operation. So I would like to start first with just a high-level overview of the steps within the contracting process. I've boiled down the the steps here into five main parts of the contracting process. So we have situations when you identify you're out of network. There's usually with regards to specialty applications uh, a specific network application that you need to fill out. Then if approved, you go into contract review and execution. After executing the contract, there are certain contract outcomes that you need to be pay attention to and, and implement within your operation. And then finally, uh, there's potential for amendments and renewals, which we'll address in the conclusion of the, of the presentation. So first, I'm gonna start with out-of-network. So there could be many different manifestations of being notified of an out-of-network pharmacy for your operation. There could be situations where you're trying to process a claim and you're just not in-network. There could be a change in status, so you were able to fill for patients and all of a sudden now you are unable to fill for those patients. We have a lot of situations where you can do the first fill and then need to transfer subsequent fills to a preferred or an exclusive specialty pharmacy. And you might have retail contracts at your institution where you can fill products like diabetes or anticoagulants, but specialty specific therapies need to go through a specific specialty pharmacy so this is going to be the basis for you to identify opportunities to grow your business and two things that i want to point out are data capabilities and the experience of your frontline staff so payer networks are very complicated um, a lot of times different pbms have multiple different network types that they sell to various different clients so when you're looking at opportunities for engaging a third-party payer to get in network it's important to collect information regarding payer and group as those networks might be set up at a group level and it's also important for you to collect employer information the patients that you're serving who is their employer because a lot of times employers may carve out um, their pharmacy benefits from their their medical benefit provider and and that can create some trouble um, you know, you might see that a certain health plan is providing services for a patient, but in reality, the pharmacy benefits are managed by a completely different company, um, and that can create some complications when trying to do the benefit investigation and making sure that you're eligible to uh, to bill for services for that those patients. Additionally, it's important to talk to your prior authorization and call center teams. They're going to have great stories about um, issues and I shouldn't say greats, but they're going to have stories that can be used when negotiating with third-party payers. A lot of times what we see is um, situations where we're out of network or we're doing a transition fill and there's gaps or delays in patient care as a result of those transitions and they can help you tease out the details on certain payers or if there's certain products that are uh, excluded as part of that network participation. Once you identify you're out of network, usually for specialty, you have to start an application process. And that can take anywhere from one and a half to two months. And it could be very tedious and very burdensome. They are gonna often request a lot of different information. They can request claims data, and this could be based on therapy providers. Uh, They might wanna look at your adherence for different therapeutic areas. They will, as Matt mentioned, wanna look at different policies and procedures. So 24/7 telephone access, Your shipping procedures, mail order and courier, cold chain procedures and how you validate those cold chain procedures, and then your ability to address barriers to care such as financial assistance. They do also look at pharmacist and technician training records. So how do you make sure that you're up to date on different legal requirements, regulatory requirements, as well as the clinical information in order to manage these patients. They will look at your accreditations and most often will require two accreditations which is why that's becoming almost a standard among health system specialty pharmacies to get to accreditations. Also, staff certifications. So some do require a certified specialty pharmacist to be on staff, or you could have certain board certifications as part of the requirement to serve patients within the network. And then often a lot of these networks require initial and ongoing reporting, which could be very administratively burdensome to operationalize. Now, after submitting that contract, which can take up to two months and you're approved, it'll go into contract review and execution. So this can take up to two months and it could take longer depending on your institution. And what I would like to talk about are negotiable and non-negotiable items. So generally from our experience, the negotiable items have been around termination notices. So if you were to be notified that you're no longer eligible to be in network, how long do they have to provide written notice to you? information for requests so if there's an audit how long do you have to provide that information and then also timelines around reporting frequencies for all the data that you might need to uh, provide as part of that network participation so our strategy is really to negotiate as long as possible timelines uh, increase the timelines as long as possible so if it you know if the termination notice is 60 days ask for 90. Uh, if the ter- if the request for audit information is 10 days, ask for 20. If the reporting frequency is quarterly, ask for semi-annually. And that just buys you more time. It allows you to maintain your business for a longer period of time if this is something that is being asked or potentially being used to exclude you from the network. Um, and it reduces some, it gives you more time to manage, better manage the administrative tasks associated with these different procedural items that might be as Part of the contract. Now, non negotiable items, again, speaking from our experience and, and, and generally, the payers are really not allowed, they're not open to negotiation on reimbursement rates unless it's your institution willing to, to go deeper on the reimbursement rates. Um, so, something to be aware of, you know, there are predatory rates with regards to 340B. You're not going to want to execute those types of agreements um, just because they're not market rates but something to to consider is if you have multiple you know pharmacies and you have certain therapeutic areas that are managed at one pharmacy you can maybe use your drug portfolio um you know if you're applying to if you're applying as a pharmacy to a network that's going to require two separate contracts you might be able to to use your rates to benefit your organization so for instance if you have an oncology pharmacy Maybe at that pharmacy, you give a little bit on your autoimmune drugs so that you can negotiate better rates on oncology and you know that your oncology products are going to be filled there. Vice versa, if you have another pharmacy that's doing your autoimmune, you might be able to use oncology, go deeper on the oncology rates so that you can get a more favorable rate on your autoimmune. So those are some things to consider. Additionally, uh, DIR assessments in our experience have been non-negotiable and obviously these are subject to a lot of uh, advocacy and and potential regulatory concerns uh, moving forward and so it'll be important to watch that and see how that plays out in the future. After you execute a contract you know it's important to think about outcomes associated with that contract and this is going to be an ongoing process. So it's important for you to analyze reimbursement rates so what you can do is you can um, the specialty drugs are always or most always listed out on a fee schedule itemized by ndc and you have a certain rate by that ndc so you can create a table where you can uh, bake in the rates into your table in excel and then get your claims data and for that specific bill group or pair you can run and see you know take the average wholesale price take the reimbursement rate and see what the actual reimbursement is based on your claims adjudication versus what the rate is in the uh, contract. So that's an important analysis to do, especially right after, to make sure that the rates are are correct from what you agreed to. At this point as well, you're gonna wanna work on prescription capture. So you can utilize your uh, patient access center or your PA team They're gonna know what's out of network. You can work with them to try to recapture those patients. And we've had a lot of times where um, we're applying for an extension. We sent something out. We follow up a a month later when we we got approval or started to uh, process those claims again. And we were able to bring that patient back because the outside pharmacy hadn't serviced the patient yet. Um, So there is an opportunity for you to work on prescription capture. Also, as part of the um, set up, you're going to want to work on data transmission and automating that data. So, f- making sure that you have a SFTP set up so it's a secure transfer of data and working with your information and decision support team to uh, automate that at the correct frequency. Revenue cycle is also important. So, you want to make sure that your bank account is set up with the third party payer so that you can receive the cash. And then also, you know, we mentioned about reimbursement rate analysis. Well, it's also important to look at what was actually paid at the claim level. So you can get a explanation of benefits from the third party payer that should allow you to look at payment by claim. And a lot of people use a revenue cycle management vendor to do this. Um, But just because the reimbursement rates are showing up as a match on your claims data, that doesn't necessarily mean what you got paid aligns to, to what was adjudicated. So it's important to do that analysis as well. And then for all of these issues, it's important to have a direct point of contact for discussing and resolving some of these issues that can pop up with regards to reimbursement rates, out of networks, um, maybe there are certain therapies that are no longer able to process through the network and then reporting. And then finally with amendments and renewals, something to consider is uh, an auto renewal clause. So setting it so that it would renew automatically for a number of years or a maximum number of years or every X years. Um, That can kind of minimize some of the administrative burden on working with these third-party payers. And then amendments, uh, a lot of times you'll get an amendment that could have either procedural items. These could be things that are operational that you need to adjust uh, as a requirement, or it could be financial with regards to the reimbursement rates. So it's important to kind of use, you know, we, we talked about reimbursement rate analysis. You can use that data table, plug in those updated reimbursement rates, and look at the overall profitability if they are proposing a change in reimbursement and see if it is still profitable and if it's something that you still want to continue to, to service for those patients or be in a be network for those patients and key takeaways each stage of the contracting process may present potential strategies to help manage potential risks organization of network application submissions is important to minimize potential for misinterpretation and engaging multiple subject matter experts across legal, finance, operations, managed care, and decision support can help streamline executing third payer contracts.
3: Great. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, and hello, everyone. I am uh, certainly excited to get to talk about, for better or worse, a scenario that is being encountered much more often within the specialty pharmacy space within health systems, which is the intersection between specialty pharmacy and the medical benefit. So to start out, where where is this intersection happening? Um, I, I would say, I think it's really happening for certain types of products, specifically high cost medical injections and infusions. And I'll try to define that a little bit better in a few slides, but I think to start out, important to note that really separation of services for these types of products is, is being disrupted. Um, what I mean by that is, traditionally within most health systems, many of these types of products were done via buy and bill in the clinics or in hospital infusion centers. Whereas most health systems, specialty pharmacy teams have focused um, on self-injectables and oral, uh, orally administered products via their outpatient pharmacies. And due to a variety of reasons that intersection or separation uh, is kind of coming together. So let's dig into a little bit more of the, the why. why. What is driving this trend and, and the intersection? So I have a variety of reasons on this slide that I think are contributing. One uh, was already mentioned earlier, but a point to as perhaps one of the largest ones is really that payer mandated white bagging or site of care restriction shifts Uh, oftentimes in response to the charge structures within hospital outpatient departments being higher in cost. So that's leading to the intersection. Also shift in benefit design, so potentially taking those products that were on the medical benefit, injectables and infusions, and shifting to the pharmacy benefit, which might shift how the product must be acquired as well. Also though, products with multiple routes of administration or different dosage forms, example, both as an IV infusion and as a subcutaneous injection might lead to more intersection here. Whole system uh, on the flip side, site of care optimization, I think here is also important to note. So not just the payers may be looking at alternate sites, but hospitals also reacting to patient demand or other reasons that they might be looking to administer products outside of the hospital where they were administered before. Then the last few, I I do think a growing business interest from external specialty pharmacies. So I've seen this as a growing area where certain pharmacies are are really looking to expand their footprint, uh, oftentimes appealing to manufacturers of more rare disease, high cost medical injection or infusion products. And along with that, just the high prevalence of these new high cost healthcare provider administered or infused type products. So at the end of the day, we end up with this And a growing Venn diagram where specialty pharmacy and buy and bill have a lot of overlap, especially with uh, home infusion, white bagging, site of care restrictions, oftentimes being things encountered for these specialty injectables and infusions, all related to their high cost. So, moving into the billing methods for these types of products, and I think this is really where a lot of the confusion comes from and what. Where I think that confusion comes from is there's different types of benefit coverage, medical benefit versus pharmacy benefit, but also different types of contracts within that benefit design that can be very challenging to determine. So if we look at medical benefit uh, contracts, which again, traditionally many of these products were covered under the medical benefit uh, and oftentimes still remain there, That medical benefit contract might be for a hospital or a physician's office-based practice, more traditional buy-and-bill type contract. It could also be a different type of medical contract for a home infusion agency, which we will talk about more. Um, And a third example might also be a medical benefit contract for a specialty pharmacy. I think important to note that those are all potentially different types of contracts with different limitations, which we'll talk about more where perhaps uh, more health system pharmacies and specialty are more comfortable is the pharmacy benefit contract side. But again, there, there are different types of contracts. There might be a retail pharmacy contract under that pharmacy benefit or PBM arrangement. There may be a specialty pharmacy contract, or there may be a home infusion contract. So I think the point here is, it's not enough to just know what benefit a product is covered under. Uh, a successful organization really has to have mechanisms to understand or provide services under different types of benefit uh, contracts for many of these products. So let's do a few examples here of, of where I know there's a lot of interest, and I'll start with medical benefit under home infusion. So within a medical benefit home infusion uh, system, most products are often billed by HicksPix or J code. And I think an important consideration within home infusion medical contracting is there's typically coverage for services provided in addition to the drug. And that makes a lot of sense. As uh, Nursing services to provide infusion products in the home setting can be uh, quite labor intensive. It's typically a per diem fee, some sort of daily fee while the patient is on service or receiving service. As well as coverage for equipment, pumps, supply codes, as well as potentially clinical services. However, the medical benefit for home infusion um, might also uh, include some instances where products are covered under that medical plan, but excluded from home infusion by contract or regulation. And to dig into home infusion, again on the opposite side, there could also be a pharmacy benefit contract for home infusion. So in this process, products are still. Um, build but build differently, usually by NDC using the NCPDP fields. And services typically are not covered for things like nursing or per diem or other costs. So there's less focus here within home infusion providers, at least historically, mostly used for things like Medicare Part D for antibiotics and really could be a a barrier as patients might not be able to cover those other costs that are necessary to provide their their home-based infusion or injection therapies. So let's flip to the medical benefits specialty pharmacy side, and I I would say this is um, one of the more challenging concepts. I would say pharmacy in this case is allowed to build a medical benefit and dispense products as a specialty pharmacy, um, which is oftentimes what might be used in a white bagging type scenario, again, if the product is still covered under the medical benefit. And in my experience, this would be outlined separately than a standard retail pharmacy benefit manager agreement. It could be within the scope of a home infusion contract, but not necessarily. And if it's included, let's say, in addition to a PBM contract where these products are also allowed to be built under the medical benefit, they may have a different claim submission process. Again, maybe a paper form or some other portal than the standard NCPDP electronic submission. But what this might do is allow a payer, for instance, who's considering wanting to keep a product on the medical benefit, but allow a specialty pharmacy to dispense, an easier pathway for buy and bill exemptions if a certain clinic wants to require that, um, and also might allow clinics to be more flexible in sourcing options Meaning between a specialty pharmacy or buy and bill. So I think this is a growing trend that is not commonly utilized within health system specialty pharmacies today. And I think that is going back to the beginning, oftentimes related to health systems using the buy and bill methodology by default for these types of products, potentially contracting differences, as well as a big point, meaning that. A lot of health system specialty pharmacies don't just dispense specialty products. We dispense products for all different uh, diseases that the patient might have and may be uh, operating under a different type of contract than a specialty contract because of that. Or also home infusion may be a preferred option if that's available within the health system. So the key takeaway I would say is just because something's coming from a specialty pharmacy does not mean it's covered by the pharmacy benefit. And this can be especially confusing when PBM machinery is involved. So as an example, CVS Caremark might be the PBM who's helping with an authorization for a medical injectable that is covered under the medical benefit, even though we traditionally think of them as covering the pharmacy benefit. So what this all leads to, in my opinion, is for many of these types of products within health system specialty space, there is that intersection but also a requirement to potentially have multiple sites of care to accommodate these complexities, whether that's convenience for the patient, out-of-pocket differences, uh, insurance requirements, or, or just patient capabilities. So key takeaways, again, coverage for these types of injectables and infusions may be under either benefit, but those coverages may be further combined by site of care, contracting or sourcing restrictions, the health system has to be able to help patients and providers navigate. Also say you might require multiple sites of care and coverage pathways to accommodate these types of products, especially in the context of growing uh, payer strategies towards addressing them. And lastly, I think specialty pharmacy teams, if they aren't already within health systems, are really well positioned to help navigate these types of challenges, especially if they can be done in collaboration or or as a part of home infusion services as well.
0: Thanks so much for listening in today. It is content like this that makes the ASHP summer meetings and exhibition the place to learn and take your practice to the next level. The upcoming summer meeting specialty track will take place in June and will feature current topics that our specialty practitioners have identified as top of mind, including new drug pipeline updates, specialty pearls, Legal and accreditation updates, and so much more. Until then, this is Jesse Hippo Rosario from ASHP Official, and thank you for all that you do for your patients.